Uh, my name is Nigel Dodd. I'm from the sociology department here at the LSE. Uh, welcome to everybody. It's a pleasure to see such a full hall. Um, welcome to, to Raj Patel. Um, he's going to speak tonight. He's the author of a, a book that's just coming out now called The Value of Nothing. Um, Raj describes himself as um, a writer, an activist, and an academic. He's, he's an ex-LSE student. He graduated here in 1995 with, he tells me, a master's in social policy and planning in developing countries. Um, he's since worked for the World Bank and the WTO. Um, he's also campaigned against them. He's been a victim of tear gas on a number of occasions, I hope not this evening. Um, and without further ado, I'll, I'll um, uh, let, let him talk. Thank you. Hello. Um, right. I, I, it's, it's, this is going to be a, a, a talk filled with more than the usual sort of level of contradiction, uh, partly because um, I, I got off a plane about three hours ago uh, from San Francisco, and obviously there's, there's a profound contradiction right there of a climate change activist flying 5,000 miles to tell you that climate change is a very serious problem. Um, but I'm, uh, I mean, the, the LSE, of course, is a place of contradiction. Uh, this is, uh, I mean, th this is a, a university that is now a sort of uh, seeding ground for merchant bankers. Um, but it was uh, founded by socialists. Uh, and of course, you know, although students today seem to prefer penguins, the motto of the, uh, of the LSE is the beaver. Uh, the people's socialist animal, uh, the, 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 the beaver being an example of uh, what collectively can be achieved through the environmental transformation and collective work. That's why the beaver is uh, on the, the LSE crest. Um, now, the, the, I, I think it's, you know, the, the, it's no accident that the, the, the beaver is there. The, the, the LSE was founded by socialists. Uh, and that's entirely appropriate since uh, the, the talk that I'm going to give, The Value of Nothing, uh, comes from a quote from, from a famous socialist. Uh, you know, Oscar Wilde uh, was the author of the line, people today know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Uh, and that's what I'm going to talk about for a little bit today. Um, so uh, it, it's easy enough to understand what the first part of that means. Uh, the, the, you, we understand when people today know the price of everything. We're surrounded by prices. We're encouraged to think of prices as natural, as, uh, you know, as, as sort of entirely sort of a, a, a part, part of the, 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 the process of life, something that doesn't have a history and doesn't have any power play behind it. Um, but of course, even if we do know prices, um, we're mystified by them. I mean, this is why, for example, if, you know, if Martians came to Earth, they would be baffled by the fact that... Um, one of, our, one of our most famous and most popular game shows, a game show that's popular in dozens of countries, is a, is a game show about guessing prices. The price is right uh, is, is precisely an indication of how mystified we are by prices. And even when we do know prices, prices don't tell us very much. I mean, I, I don't need to tell anyone at the London School of Economics that uh, prices uh, don't, prices are mystifications. Prices hide things. Um, I mean, let's take a sort of commonplace, uh, take something that, that we feel we all understand, uh, something like a hamburger. Now, you may pay, what, for, what, what, what is a, uh, how much does a Big Mac go for in Britain these days? Anyone know? Pound 88, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do. No, no, clearly, the non-Hindu contingent in the audience there. Um, so, 
pound 88. Uh, now, if, if the, the beef that uh, went into that burger was raised on, on land that used to be rainforest, uh, then the price of that burger would be nearer $200. Um, in other words, I mean, there's, there's a value that might be assigned to the ecosystemic uh, services that are lost through converting rainforest into pasture. Um, there are costs associated with the loss of biodiversity, costs associated with uh, the, the loss of carbon sequestration, uh, of uh, deteriorated water cycles. All of these can have a dollar value imputed to them. Um, and, and, and yet, of course, you know, all of that is hidden from us at the, at the checkout. That isn't to say, of course, that we don't end up paying the price. Um, in the United States, uh, of course, the world's most obese country, uh, the, uh, the, the, the cost of a fast food diet is immense. Um, at, at the moment, one in five of the US, uh, US's healthcare dollars is spent looking after someone with diabetes, $174 billion last year. Um, and th the costs of, uh, of, of that you know, $4 hamburger, that you know, dollar, sorry, £1.88 hamburger, uh, are costs that eventually get paid by someone. It just not paid for by the McDonald's Corporation. Um, and, and this idea of, of uh, that th th there are externalities in prices uh, is, is true for pretty much everything. Uh, for everything from your cell phone to your food to, um, to, to, to you know, television even. The, 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 there are external costs uh, to things that we receive at a, at, at, for free or at discounted prices. Um, and this is a global problem. I mean, in China, for example, 8% uh, of Chinese GDP is estimated to be, uh, the, 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 to, to be part of this external cost. Um, to, just to, get, to give you an example, in, in the northeast of China, where 95% of uh, Chinese food or Chinese grain is grown, uh, China has, has essentially transformed that into a giant dust bowl. Um, it's, it's, uh, the, the biggest environmental problem in China is these dust storms. I mean, you know, the way we understand Chinese environmental problems, it's always about pandas. Uh, but in China uh, and in East Asia, uh, the big environmental problem uh, and one that, that causes $31 billion just in healthcare costs alone uh, every year is uh, these huge sandstorms that blow up from a, a desertified uh, northeastern China and blow across East Asia and uh, recently blew all the way to the United States and, and all the way to Denver. Um, th these are huge environmental costs uh, associated with uh, the production, in this case, of food. Um, but th the, the externalization of costs is something that is endemic to capitalism. Um, th 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 we shouldn't be surprised uh, that, that capitalism is about squeezing out these externalities. Uh, th these are the rules of the game. I mean, if, if, you're, uh, in, uh, uh, if, if you're the CEO of a company that is trying to keep costs down and trying to, to, to keep profits up, then if you do not try and externalize costs, if you do not try and get someone else to pay, if you do not try and pay your labor as little as you can, um, you will be fired by your shareholders. There's, you know, the, 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 these, these are the very simple rules of, uh, of the game. Uh, and of course, as, as part of capitalism, the, the, the people who, who well, the work that, that gets paid the least is reproductive labor, women's labor in particular. Um, and again, I mean, this is a, a sort of global problem. Um, we know that, that uh, women perform two thirds of the, the, world's, uh, the world's work and get paid 20% of the wages. Um, in 1995, uh, an, an estimate was made to, to, to calculate women's unpaid work and the value of women's unpaid work, uh, and it amounted to about 40% of the world's gross product. 
So 40% of the, 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 the way that capitalism works systematically uh, undervalues or does not pay for reproductive labor and, and for women's work. Uh, and that is a subsidy to capitalism, a subsidy to the way that, that our world, world works today. Um, so, but again, we shouldn't be surprised. These are the rules of the game. This is the system we've set up. What we should be interested in uh, is a deeper question of why uh, we have markets at all. Um, because in a sense, we're sort of inured to markets. We believe, that, I mean, particularly now, when you hear in the run-up to Copenhagen, uh, where climate change is going to be tackled with cap and trade and the range of market-based instruments, um, we should be worried that uh, the only solutions that seem to be on the table are market-driven solutions. Um, it's, and and the, the, there seems to be no other way in which we can value or uh, discuss our world's resources other than by putting them under the gaze of markets. It's as if, collectively, we have Anton's blindness. Anton's blindness is, uh, is a, a neurological disease. It was named uh, for, for, uh, the, uh, for, for two neurologists, Anton and Babinski. Um, and Anton's blindness is a, a disease usually follows a stroke or, or sort of traumatic brain injury where you are cortically blind, but you believe that you can see. Anton's blindness is a disease where you, 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 uh, the, the people who have Anton's blindness will uh, you know, sort of stumble around and bump into things and insist that they can see absolutely clearly and that the reason they bump into things is because of some oversight on their part. Uh, it's, it's like a, I mean, it, 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 the confabulation, the lying about bumping into things, is a way in which the disease is diagnosed. And that's a, a, a metaphor. I mean, it's, it's quite a good metaphor for the way that, that, that we insist on uh, markets, being, um, markets being the way in which we value the world, and prices being the way in which we value the world. And when things go wrong, uh, as they have recently, then there will be a certain amount of confabulation. Uh, and if you listen to the, 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 the or read the pages of uh, the Financial Times, you'll see uh, the economics profession wringing its hands and confabulating about how they got it wrong. But everything's okay now, uh, and and things will will carry on as normal. But but insisting that. Uh, markets and prices can illuminate the world, uh, despite the mounting evidence that, that actually they cannot, uh, is no less a confabulation and no less a delusion than believing that you can see when you are, in fact, blind. So why do we believe in markets? Why is the empire of markets something that is nonetheless uh, lodged so firmly in our imaginations? Um, well, partly, of course, we're conscripted into it by the, the, the promises of consumer society and the promises of happiness. Um, the, of course, that's not true. I mean, the, 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 the idea that, that the more money you have and the more uh, prices, the more, uh, the more that you are able to afford, the happier you will be, has been proven systematically wrong. Um, Nonetheless, the, 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 particularly after sort of uh, the, the, the years of Thatcher and Reagan, where there, where other ways of valuing the world were systematically crushed, uh, and ways of organizing against the state and, and uh, ways of organizing against capitalism came under such profound uh, pressure and, uh, as I say, attempts to crush them. It, it, our imaginations have been impoverished in terms of ways of thinking about other ways in which we might value the world. And of course, we're sold the idea that, above all, markets and prices provide a certain transparency and provide a kind of freedom. 
that the one thing, even if markets get it wrong from time to time, it's much better than anything else because at least what markets can do is provide liberty. And that's an idea that uh, the late and great philosopher Jerry Cohen had a thought experiment about, and I, I want to share this thought experiment with you. So Jerry Cohen says, look, imagine a world uh, where your freedoms are distributed to you on little tickets. Um, so you, you, you will get a ticket that says you have the right to go and buy a, a hamburger for a, for a pound 88. Uh, you have a ticket to go visit your sick grandmother. You have a ticket to have your bone reset after you, you, you tumble in the street. You have a ticket for being able to drive a car, live in a house, um, you know, go places, do stuff. Um, and these tickets are distributed in this society at random. Uh, and you're not compelled to use these tickets, but if you choose to, you can. If you try and do something for which you do not have a ticket, uh, then the police will intervene. Uh, and, and so th th this is a, a world in which your rights are basically given to you on, on little bits of paper. Now, Jerry Cohen says, look, actually what money is, is a generalized form of those tickets, right? I mean, the, 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 what, what, uh, if, if, we, if we have a world where we distribute things according, uh, according to the market, if we distribute things according to the, the ability to pay for them, then in fact what we're doing is creating society where the more money you have, the more liberty you have. And that runs rather counter to the idea that uh, free markets in and of themselves provide liberty. Um, what money is in, in this kind of a society, in, in, uh, under capitalism, money becomes the right to have rights. Money becomes a means to be able to have rights, a means to be able to afford and to, 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 to avail yourself of rights. Now hang on to that idea about a right to have rights, um, because it's going to come in handy when we think about the alternatives. Um, but it is important to, to think about why, um, you know, what might be done about this. Uh, we used to think that perhaps government uh, would help, but again, uh, I mean, particularly as this crisis has shown, uh, government uh, is largely a handmaiden to capital. Um, when Marx talked about uh, the government being uh, managing the, uh, an executive committee for managing the affairs of the bourgeoisie, that sounded like you know, sort of uh, crazy socialist madness uh, a year ago. But I think everyone, is, I mean, it's pretty clear uh, that without, for example, in the United States, the 20 trillion dollars of obligations that the government has made uh, to the banking industry, um, the, the you know the capitalism wouldn't be around as we know it today. Uh, and the government is more or less, particularly in, in its uh, manifestations for, in the financial sector, absolutely beholden to a particular section of the bourgeoisie. Um, now, of course, the, the, the spread of markets internationally is also no accident. I mean, it's no accident that this is a global crisis. Um, the, the spread of these markets has, has happened uh, through the, 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 uh, a mixture of the, the, you know, the promotion of, uh, of, of neoliberal ideas through institutions such as this one, um, but also through uh, the, 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 the imposition of uh, free markets and of neoliberal ideas through organizations like the World Bank. Uh, and so, uh, and, and I, th I think it's important that people understand the World Bank uh, and, and know what it is. And I have a, uh, I mean, sometimes it can get a little overwhelming uh, to, to think about the World Bank and about what it does and how it works. Uh, and so I have a, a small contribution uh, to, to pedagogy, uh, a metaphor for you, uh, that it helps explain the World Bank. And it, and it comes from the Terry Gilliam film, Time Bandits. 
Um, has anyone here seen Time Bandits? A couple of a couple of stoners in the audience. Okay, so if you haven't seen it, um, uh, Time Bandits is a sort of Monty Python film. Um, it's uh, you know it, it, it's 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 the Monty Python crew, and and they're. Um, it, it, it's a film about disgruntled former employees of God. Uh, um, basically, the story is that the universe was built uh, in six days, so it was a rush job. Uh, and uh, God had help, but he doesn't treat his workers very well. Uh, so they run off with a map of the universe, with all the holes in the universe. And in one scene, uh, they, uh, they, they, well, they, they use this map to, 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 to rob people. In one scene, they rob Napoleon, and they get all this stuff. And they jump through a hole in the universe. Uh, and they end up in Sherwood Forest, where they are met by Robin Hood, uh, who's played by John Cleese uh, as a sort of upper-class twit. Um, and, and so he's sort of wearing this big green pointy hat. Uh, and he introduces himself as Hood. And Hood is very excited to see all Napoleon stuff. And he's, you know, he's, he's, he's all, well, this is tremendous. I will thank you very much indeed. The poor will love this. Have you met the poor? They're charming people. Uh, of course, they don't have two pennies to rub together, but that's because they're poor. Um, and, and so and Hood is very excited to give away Napoleon's stuff. Uh, and so he sort of said, bring on the poor, and the poor are brought on, this sort of line of disheveled people. Uh, and uh, Robin Hood sort of works the line. He works his way down. And uh, he sort of gives, you know, gilded mirror for you. There we are. Congratulations. Jolly good. Uh, and, uh, you know, sort of rubies for you. Yes, how long have you been poor? Jolly good. Uh, and sort of moves them along. And then right next to Hood is this bloke who takes everything that Hood has given and punches the person in the face. So that's how the World Bank works. Uh, that's, um, it's, it's, it's actually startling. I mean, when I worked at the World Bank, I, I worked, um, I, I, I was part of this, you know, have you met the poor? They love us. I, I wrote a report called Voices of the Poor. Can anyone hear us? Um, and the purpose of this report was really to, to help the World Bank construct this image of, have you, have you met the poor? We had lunch with them yesterday. They love us. Um, and I mean, I shit you not. I mean, the, 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 end, the end of this report was fantastic. It, was, it, it ended with this uh, story about, uh, that came from some consultants who said, yes, we, dro we, we drove into the village and the sun was setting. Spontaneously, the women gathered around the fire and they sang, uh, here are the World Bank, here are the World Bank. They are here to help us. They are here to develop us. We hope they won't forget us. Will we? And that's how the World Bank reports ended. Uh, and, and of course, the, the, that's, I mean, the, the, this, this sort of delusion of, have you met them? We love them. Uh, it's part of the, the World Bank sort of mythos. But of course, you know, the, 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 and then there's the loan, the sort of moment of generosity. And then there's a punch in the face uh, that, that, that comes through the imposition of these kinds of neoliberal policies and, and free market policies. Um, now, I'm, I mean, it's, it's easy to, and important to make fun of the World Bank. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's also I important to recognize that you know, the people who work at the World Bank are not sort of Blofeldian villains who sit in their you know, sort of black swivel chairs stroking cats, wondering you know, sort of how... I mean, people in the World Bank are fueled with a, a, a sort of desire to help the world and, and, uh, and, and propelled by that, uh, by, by that, that sort of delusion. Um, but it, it's, it's one that we all kind of share, you know, this, this idea of, um, you know, if, if you... Give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, but teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. Yeah, that, 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 that kind of cockle-warming idea um, is, is one that, that on, you know, on the one hand, it sounds perfectly reasonable. Yeah, who wouldn't want to teach a man to fish? 
but, but it's important to think about how that constructs um, the, the recipients of aid. I mean, think about it for a second. I mean, you know, the, the image that underwrites that metaphor is of you know, people eating fish by the side of the riverbank in some third world country, and they'll look over to the river and they'll well, what's that? It looks like a fish. And how are we going to get it out? Well, I have no idea. We'll have to wait for the nice white man from the World Bank to come and tell us. Uh, and he has this sort of idea of, of people who are incapable until the World Bank sort of shines the light of knowledge. And, uh, and uh, it, the, the idea of teach a man to fish is also the, the, an idea that erases the past, uh, a way that erases ways of, of, uh, in which uh, people in developing countries might already have developed to govern themselves, uh, and also erases the memory that, that, in fact, there might be a debt that, that the bank owes them. If we think about ecological debt, for example, as we began, um, a recent study uh, in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in the United States uh, basically did a sort of audit, an environmental audit, of who owes whom what. Uh, and in, uh, in this audit, they, they, they measured the environmental footprint of rich countries on poor ones from, what, 1960 to 2000. And the environmental footprint from uh, rich countries onto poor ones, if you, if you count uh, climate change, if you count mangrove destruction, if you uh, count uh, ozone depletion, agricultural intensification, overfishing, these five categories, um, and, and if you value them very conservatively, uh, then poor countries owe rich ones about, what, $1.3 trillion. But rich countries owe poor ones $5 trillion. There's a net debt from rich countries to poor ones. Now that pales, you know, that $5 trillion, just to put it into perspective, if, if you take the world debt uh, you know, of the kind that the World Bank uh, and uh, uh, bilateral loans from rich countries to poor ones, that debt is about $1.8 trillion. $1.8 trillion over here, $5 trillion that the rich countries owe the poor ones. And that, of co that debt, of course, is erased. Uh, in this moment of charity, in this moment of, uh, of, of giving from rich to poor, there's a certain amount of amnesia not only about what the, the, the damage that rich countries have caused poor ones already, uh, but also about the kinds of government that already existed in poor countries that have been stamped out. Now that actually turns out to be important because if we're thinking about other ways of valuing the world, uh, then it's important to, to think about the, the modes of government in which we might value the world differently. Um, and I, I guess I, I, the, the, the way that, that I'd like to think about this is, is using an idea that, that suddenly come back into fashion called the commons. Um, now, of course, you know, the, the, the way we, we, we might first come across the commons is, you know, the, is, is through its tragedy. People know about the tragedy of the commons. Um, and the tragedy of the commons isn't, of course, you know, to do with ducks and moats and that sort of thing. The, the, the tragedy of the commons uh, is, is this idea that, that was first um, uh, presented by, um, uh, by a biologist called uh, Garrett Hardin. Uh, the, the idea behind the tragedy of the commons uh, is that if you have a, a, an unenclosed, an unowned resource, uh, that, uh, that resource will be ineluctably exploited uh, by uh, the, the people around it until that resource is destroyed. Uh, and so but by having a, a, a resource that isn't in some way privately held, um, you, you, you create the sort of Hobbesian state of nature where everyone is just going to go for it and destroy it. Now, when Hardin presented this argument, uh, it was entirely uh, without evidence. It, it appeared in, uh, in the journal Science, 
in, I think, 1968. And, and it, was, it was presented without any backing at all. But it fit very nicely into a kind of Malthusian, uh, Malthusian vision of the world uh, that rich countries had about poor ones at the time, uh, in which the, the poor were rapacious and fueled really uh, by their groins and their stomachs. Uh, and, and so they would you know, gather food if, if they can, and then they would reproduce, and then their kids would gather, and it would be just a, an, an almighty mess, and then there would be a population crash, and, and everything would go horribly wrong. Now, th th that, that idea of the tragedy of the commons um, turns out actually not to be true in fact. Um, in a, and in fact, th th there's been plenty of evidence, particularly recently, uh, that, uh, uh, that, that communities, uh, particularly indigenous communities, but, but uh, uh, th there are ways in which people can hold resources in common that are actually far superior, both to, to uh, free markets and also to sort of state-driven state um, uh, uh, projects. Uh, again, uh, this is a report that came out last month uh, that looked at 40 forest communities uh, around the world. Uh, and they, they compared uh, ways in which resources could be held in common. Uh, and they found that, uh, that communities that, that were able to hold resources in common, particularly over large areas of forest, uh, without interference from government or from capital, uh, were, were able to sequester far more carbon they were able to have better lives, uh, and they were able to, I mean, they were uh, across a range of indicators uh, able to, to conserve the forest far better than when a central government came in and started man managing the forest for them, uh, or you know, when, private, when the private sector came in. So in other words, the tragedy of the commons is very misleading. When resources are held in common and there are uh, systems of managing those resources, actually uh, th things can work out far better and if we're concerned about climate change, then actually thinking about the commons as a vehicle for ensuring that uh, the, the, the carbon sequestration happens, for example, and that forests are managed sustainably, then the commons do much better than the, the systems of, of development or so-called development and neoliberal development uh, that are being foisted on developing countries. Now, this isn't to say, of course, that there aren't environmental catastrophes. Of course, there are. Uh, but, but think about, let's think about dust bowls, for example. I, mean, I mentioned the Chinese one earlier on. Now, that Chinese dust bowl isn't a tragedy of the commons. It is the result of uh, some fairly explicit state-driven agricultural incentives uh, and the application of industrial agriculture um, in a, a sort of mixed sort of uh, state socialist market, uh, market planning uh, that has caused a, a tremendous amount of resource degradation. Of course, you know, it's not just China that gets it wrong. The United States had its own dust bowl. And again, that tragedy was not a result of the tragedy of the commons. It was the result of the imposition of capitalist industrial, industrial agriculture. The reason we had the dust bowl in the United States was not because everyone was sort of just going for it in terms of resources, but because the kinds of agriculture that were applied were driven by capitalism and the, 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 the full costs of that agriculture were externalized into the future and into the future and into the future, and eventually they added, you know, the future caught up with the agriculturalists in the dust bowl. Uh, and, and, and therefore, you know, we, we see that the dust bowl in China and the dust bowl in the United States created by the absence of a commons, not by, not by its tragedy. Uh, and and there, there are lots of other examples that we could talk about, when, you know, talking about fisheries, talking about forests, talking about pretty much any uh, natural resource that needs management. The commons can be a way in which that management happens. Um, but you know, we, we need, to, you know, obviously, not, not, not to romanticize it, um, but we do need to, to, to think about what commons management is. Uh, and and the, the commons is, well, it's two things. 
I mean, the Commons is not just the stuff. You know, it's not like sort of Wimbledon Common, where there it is and that's the Commons. The Commons is both resources and the mechanisms through which they are valued. Now, you know, again, one doesn't need to be sort of get, get all misty-eyed about the commons. Uh, to, uh, you know, one can see that, that, that there are some common systems which are tremendously exploitative. But I uh, derive a lot of my hope for the, for the commons from uh, writers like Peter Leinbohr and the members of the Midnight Notes Collective who, uh, are, who, who argue that the history of the commons and offer a, a very radical and democratic way of thinking about its future. Um, and the commons, particularly sort of the possibility of democratic deliberation around resources and about how, to, how they might be valued, is, I think, something to get quite excited about. Um, and just to be clear, of course, you know, I mean, right now, I, 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 I don't think that we live in a democracy. I don't think that we have the mechanisms at a state level to be able to make democracy happen. Um, but I do think that there are initiatives underway that, that, that point, you know, that, that, that point to, to the right direction. And so um, I'm, I, I want to sort of finish up, really, with, with an example from uh, a peasant movement, uh, in fact, the international peasant movement, La, La Via Campesina. I talked about them uh, in the past, but I, I think that it's important to remember them uh, and to remember the way in which they're trying to offer a solution, not only to the climate crisis, but a range of, uh, to, to the, the deficit of democracy that we live through at the moment. Um, now, just to, just to give you some background, I mean, La Via Campesina was, is a movement of 150 million farmers, landless workers, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, landless people and farm workers around the world. Um, the, uh, the, 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 I don't, the, they do not have a, a, a representative base in the United Kingdom. Um, the, the UK, for some reason, has, uh, has some pretty bad farming politics to do with, you know, obviously, the sort of history of the aristocracy and the, the fact that the, the, you know, the National Farmers Union, the NFU, is pretty bad. Um, it was it's private eye that, that, that colloquially refers to the NFU as no fucking use. Uh, and I think that that's pretty accurate. Um, but, but around the, I mean, the United States, Canada, a range of other countries in Europe, and of course uh, countries in, in the global south, do have tremendously strong peasant movements and landless rural workers movements. Um, and those movements have come up with a vision. I mean, the, 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 they, the, La Via Campesina was formed in opposition to the World Bank, in opposition to the kinds of uh, neoliberal policy that were, were rammed down their throats. Um, and they've come up with this, this vision of, um, of, of a way to feed the world that is very different from the sort of neoliberal let market, markets rule model. And of course, you know, we, we know that, that letting markets rule is a very bad idea if you want to feed the world. Uh, last year, a billion people were undernourished. A billion people had less than 1,900 calories to eat uh, every day. Um, that number is, is certain to go up this year. And even in the United States, la last year in the United States, 49 million people went hungry. 49 million Americans went hungry in 2008. Um, at, uh, and and the, the cost to the, the U.S. in terms of health care, in terms of lost productivity, in terms of all of that, is $138 billion. Um, hunger has a tremendous cost, of course, but, but uh, letting markets work to provide food doesn't seem to be working. So Via Campesina has this idea uh, of, of what they call food sovereignty. Now, food sovereignty is, I mean, has a long definition, and, and you can check it out on Wikipedia if you like. Um, but, but basically, it, it's, the, 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 the essence of food sovereignty is about, uh, the, it's about people's and states' and unions' right to be able to shape their own food policy. 
the right to be able to shape your own food policy. Um, it's, it's, it's not terribly catchy, uh, but, but if, if you think about it for, for a second, the, the right to be able to shape your food policy is a sort of second-order right. It's not saying we want our food policy to be this and that will be food sovereignty. Food sovereignty is the right to have rights over your food policy. And this idea of this, <clears throat> the, the possibility of having a, a say in your food policy and, the, and in agriculture policy is essentially a demand for democracy. A democracy that, that has never touched the food system, uh, has never touched you know, much of economic life. Uh, and th that possibility of, of uh, creating democracy around the food system is something that uh, is, uh, I mean, that the, the, the Via Campesina offers as a way of actually valuing the world differently. Um, I mean, to, just to give you a sort of concrete example, I mean, th th there are a number of ways, if we're thinking about mangroves, if we're th th thinking, thinking about ways of valuing natural resources. Um, there are, there are lots of ways, for example, to, to value mangrove forests, uh, and this, um, th this comes from the ecological economist uh, Juan uh, Alier Martinez, and, uh, whose work I recommend. Um, uh, and he, if, if you think about mangroves, mangroves have a, a number of functions. They are uh, hatcheries for fish. Um, they provide protection from storms. Uh, what, you know, one of the reasons why uh, the tsunami was so bad a couple of years back was because of uh, extensive mangrove deforestation. Uh, mangroves provide uh, a refuge for biodiversity. They provide food sources of, of other kinds. Mangroves, can, uh, mangroves have cultural meanings. And the same, I mean, you know, different people will have different valuations of, for example, mangroves. And in fact, the, the same people at different times will have different valuations of mangroves. So what's the way of sorting that out? Well, if you let markets rule, that's one way of making the choice. Uh, but uh, as I say, if you, if letting markets sort that valuation out is uh, a, a way, uh, essentially, of providing power to the richest people. What Via Campesina is saying is, well, actually, let, let's have a, a democratic discussion about how to value those mangroves. And th that, that, th that democratic discussion means that the fishers will have one vision of, of, of what, what to do there. Um, yeah, farmers will have another. And, and there, will, there will be a range of, of different ways, of competing ways, of valuing that resource. But there is no one unique solution to that. The only way that you get to a way of valuing those resources is through the cut and thrust of democratic debate. Um, and that's, you know, the, the, getting to, to that kind of multivalent approach to valuing natural resources through a democratic deliberation is, I mean, is, is, is the way that Via Campesina is, is offering. Now, of course, again, it's important not to, to romanticize or, or, or to imagine that this is going to be some sort of perfect system. Um, and Via Campesina itself has been, you know, has been running into difficulties trying to figure out how to make this valuation process work, how to make democracy work. Uh, and and uh, you know, sometimes they've made missteps, and recently they've, they've come out, they've realized that they can go as far as they can without addressing one of the, the fundamental issues uh, around valuation and poverty. Uh, and that is, of course, women's rights. And, and so Via Campesina now, in, uh, in their meeting last year in Maputo, came up with a new slogan for food sovereignty. Uh, and the, the, the slogan is, food sovereignty is about an end to all forms of violence against women. Food sovereignty is about an end to all forms of violence against women. Now, th th that seems to be tremendously far from you know, talk about valuation and talk about um, you know, making sure that the world is fed. And yet, of course, it's right at the heart of it. Remember, of course, that, that, that capitalism doesn't. I mean, this, I mean that, that there is a systematic uh, process of violence against women within capitalism. 
Uh, and that violence extends not only to, you know, not only from uh, the, the, the um, violence within the home, um, but the violence that comes from uh, an inability to send your daughter to school or uh, an inability to be able to sell your product on the open market or to, to have equal voice and equal say uh, in, uh, in, uh, in democratic deliberation. Uh, and so the, the, there is this sort of process of, of, of actually of, of, of an unfolding of the commons um, in, 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 in what Via Campesina is trying to do. Uh, and as it happens, that's also, that also looks like it's going to be the way in which we are able to save the planet. Um, recently, th there was a, a big report uh, by 400 of the world's leading uh, agricultural scientists called the International Agricultural Assessment on Knowledge, Science and Technology for Development. The IAA STD. Uh, these people did not go to acronym school. Um, <clears throat> but uh, the, the ISTAD report basically said that, that, look, in the future, if we're going to feed the world, uh, we are going to need to shift away from the kinds of agriculture that externalize costs. We're going to need, need to, to move to an agriculture that is uh, sustainable, uh, an agriculture that builds soil fertility, uh, an agriculture that is locally controlled. Uh, and you know, there's, we're already seeing reports that if the world were to shift to, for example, agroecological agriculture, uh, that we would be able to, to sequester 40% of anthropogenic carbon emissions. 40% of, of man-made carbon emissions is a lot. I mean, there, there is no other technology that promises that kind of return, other than, of course, leaving the, the oil in the ground, which is also a very good uh, approach to, to fighting climate change. Um, but th 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 this approach of, uh, of, of, uh, of taking on um, the, the, the possibility of making agroecological agriculture happen requires not only uh, a government that's prepared to listen, but a, 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 a populace that's prepared to demand it. Um, and I guess this is sort of my last thought, is that... If, if we want to see these kinds of commons happen, um, yeah, an example of the, the, the kinds of agroecological agriculture that will save the world uh, are to be found in Cuba. Now, Cuba is, uh, I mean, there are reasons why Cuba uh, has strong agroecological agriculture. I mean, it was cut off from oil and from the industrial agricultural model after the Soviet Union fell. Um, but you know, the, having a socialist government is no guarantee of, uh, of progressive agriculture policy. And for the first couple of years after uh, the, 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 you know, the fall of the Soviet Union, the, the things were pretty bad in Cuba. Um, but what did happen uh, was that, that, firstly, people demanded uh, technologies to make uh, sustainable agriculture happen. They demanded land reform which is an important technology to make uh, sustainable agriculture happen. And then they demanded that the research scientists uh, invest in agriculture to be able to, to develop forms of, of growing food that were sustainable. In other words, what, what you had was the, the, the development of uh, demands from the people and a government that would listen. It was, it was the, 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 the sort of dialectical relation between those two that made possible uh, a sustainable agriculture. Um, but that means you know, a, a population that feels empowered, a, a population that feels that it owns the government. Uh, and of course, most of us don't feel like that. Um, uh, most of us, I mean, although we're told that we live in a democracy, actually, but I, I don't think we do. Uh, the, the, I mean, the, 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 the first democracy, I mean, if you think of Athenian democracy, um, you know, the, the, there weren't even elections in, 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 in the original democracy. Uh, the, the way democracy worked was that 6,000 citizens, yes men, yes not slaves, um, were selected at random to be the government. 
6,000 people selected at random to be the government uh, for a year, and then, and, then, you know, you, you, and then you left. That was it. Uh, and this, this process of being selected at random was part of being a citizen. And people who did not take their, their job of being a citizen seriously were called idiots. And that was the technical term for people who did not uh, refuse, I mean, who, who refused to, to take citizenship seriously. And I think that that's what we need to be doing more of. I think we do need to be taking citizenship a lot more seriously than we do. Um, I, I think that we, we need to rediscover what it is to be democratic, because I don't think that any of us have had any real experience of it. Um, and I think that there are plenty of models around the world that we can draw inspiration from uh, and ways in which we can create that democracy right here. Uh, but it does mean that uh, we have to start getting a little bit more active than we have been so far. And that's perhaps the thought that I will leave you with, uh, but I would love to take questions. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. That was a John Cleese impression to remember. Um, we had about 40 minutes for, for questions, and I'm sure there should be, should be many. Um, so, hands up, please. Yeah, the gentleman in the corner there. There's a mic going around, so it will take a little time. Thank you, Professor Patel, for the, the presentation you have given us. My question would be, if we look today, and I'll be happy if you can tell us about exceptions, but it seems that the richer the nation gets, the more alienated the people become. So if we look at what would be called developed and rich nations, with perhaps some exceptions in perhaps Nordic countries, they tend, the population tends to become very alienated, so they are uninterested in where does the food come from, they're interested on the impact that it can have. Can you comment on, one, why do you think there's this correlation, and two, what can be done to change that? Or where, are, uh, where can we find nations that have a different process and have developed, but yet have people who are engaged into those questions that you have raised? That's a, that's a great question. Thanks very much. Um, I, it, it, it's funny. I mean, the, the, this, it's tempting to think that you know, the, 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 the richer a country gets, the more alienated it is. I, 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 I can see where, where, why one would think that and it, why it seems, it seems natural, uh, that, that poor countries are the ones that produce the food and rich countries are the ones that eat it. Um, but, I mean, well, there's, I mean, there's a story that I, I, I'm trying to shoehorn in here. I'm just going to tell it uh, because it's, it's, it's just so interesting. The, 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 I mean... A lot of this idea of alienation from not only from food but from you know, the, the, the economic structure of society also is fed to us by the media. Um, and th there's a I, I talk there's a story from that's in the book from uh, Bhutan um, where as a result of uh, the introduction of uh, Rupert Murdoch's uh, Star TV in, in, in Bhutan. Uh, one of the countries before this this was introduced, Bhutan is famously the most you know, the happiest country on earth. Um, where people are you know, harmoniously attached to their environment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, after they started beaming in Star TV, the, 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 the rates of unhappiness went through the roof, and particularly among young people who, who saw unattainable images on, on, on their screens, uh, uh, unattainable images of, of, of a society they could, never, they could never be a part of. And so they went on the rampage, in particular stealing telephones uh, and, and cell phones. And so th this idea, I mean, they became very alienated from their society, not because uh, their society had suddenly become urban, 
urban, uh, but because there were representations of that that, that seemed to be circulating that, that affected them quite deeply. Um, and it's, I mean, I've heard similar stories from when I was doing research with Stuffed and Starved, I heard similar stories about after the end of apartheid, young people again found that, that, uh, that, that in particular, cell phones were the things that they coveted and were absolutely denied by uh, the representations that they saw in the media. So, so this idea of alienation is, is in general, uh, this idea of, of being disenchanted with your future prospects in society is something that's, that's very complex. But, but in terms of get, getting to alienation from, the food, uh, for, from food, um, it's, it's odd. I mean, I, 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 I think it's, it's, it's again, um, one of the, the sort of... One of the, the most embedded myths uh, around development, and myths that are very popular, that, that um, agriculture is backward. I mean, you know, if, if you ask uh, kids in rural areas uh, in any uh, country in the global south whether they would prefer to be in the city or in the country, of course, they will, they, they will, everyone wants to go to the city. And when you see the images on television about what it's like in the city, of course, you would want that. Um, but it's not inevitable. Uh, the uh, the MST in Brazil has uh, you know has figured out ways in which you know if the kids want to go to the city they they do but often they come back um, because they find that, that life in the city is in every way more alienated than life in in rural areas. Um, the United States at the moment is undergoing something of a, a renaissance of uh, young people leaving the city to start uh, agriculture. Um, and that's something that, that, that I think is, is the result of cultural change around food and food systems. Uh, it's also due to the fact that, that in the United States at the moment, you know, the, the, the food system is so um, desperately impoverished. Uh, that, that there are so many hungry people that, that, that obesity is through the roof. And yet, more and more young people are starting to, 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 you know, to make the decision that they, they want to go into farming. In fact, it's starting to become a problem. Because to go into farming in the United States requires a ton of money. Um, you, know, you need sort of north of half a million dollars to get a farm off the road. Um, basically, you know, to buy the equipment and get, to get everything going. Um, but you are starting to see that shift. Uh, and it's coming through a, a number of things. I mean, it, it is cultural. Uh, it is to do with a certain kind of counter-politics of, uh, of, of I mean, not, not a sort of back-to-the-land movement, but it's certainly linked to environmental politics uh, and linked to a certain kind of lifestyle politics, too. I mean, not, not the most progressive lifestyle politics, but nonetheless, a, a, a vision about how sustainability might work and, and what your role in sustainability is. Um, so I, mean, I, I think that there's no one thing that, that drives a, 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 a movement back to sustainability. Um, but I do think that as, and, and again, this ISTAT report is very interesting. I mean, they're saying that, look, in 2050, in order to feed 9 billion people, we are going to have to have much more urban and peri-urban agriculture. Uh, and again, that, that becomes a, 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 an opening for, for groups in rural, sorry, in urban settings in the United States um, to start things like community gardens to start ways of feeding parts of, of, of the United States, the, the hungriest parts of cities, uh, that had previously been disconnected from um, alternative ways of feeding, you know, of feeding oneself. So I think that, that there are, uh, you know, the, the, the pressures that, that lie ahead in terms of rising food prices and the need to shift to more sustainable agriculture, as well as cultural changes, are, are all going to help combat the, the kinds of disconnection that we've seen from the food system t to date. I'm just going to stand up if that's all right. Hello. Hello. You, you, you started your lecture 
telling us about how you flew 5,000 miles to publicize your new book. And uh, <coughs> it seems to me it would have been far better if, if you had hired somebody to publicize the book for you and then you would have saved all that, that long journey and all that carbon emissions from, from traveling. And I suppose after a few days you're going to fly back and, and, and all for the sake of publish, publicizing a book. And, and after all said and done, everything, mo most of the audience here are already converted to, to the views that you are expressing. So I don't, I don't see the sense. You, you could have hired somebody to publicize the book for you. Well, thanks very much. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, who could have done a better John Cleese impersonation, though? Um, <laughs> But no, I mean, I, I certainly think that, there's, that, that that's right. And uh, one of the things around the, the commons is uh, the idea of stinting. Um, I mean, the idea that one would actually voluntarily reduce one's, you know, one's anti-communist behavior. Uh, and that's something that I'm, I'm moving, I'm, I've actually, in, in the coming year, doing, I mean, I get asked to speak in a lot of places, uh, and I'm shifting from actually traveling to Skyping. I think that that's uh, a good thing to do. I mean, you know, I, I take on the chin, the, the, the full force of the contradiction of someone who is arguing against capitalism, but is nonetheless flying 5,000 miles to pimp out his book. Um, that's... That's a contradiction, and who of us is not riven and ridden with contradiction? Um, but I, I think that, that uh, I mean, uh, I mean, I, I'm also actually uh, flying down to do. Uh, I am flying away, but I'm flying further away. I'm, I'm not going back to San Francisco. I'm going to Malawi, um, where I'm, I'm going to be doing some work on uh, on Jeffrey Sachs's Millennium Villages, um, and the, the uh, I'm going to be investigating quite what he's up to there. Um, now, you're, you're right, I, mean, I could do that by, well, actually that's something I couldn't do on Skype. Um, and that's the sort of thing, and I feel like, as someone who is an activist and occasionally a journalist, um, digging the truth uh, and trying to get underneath uh, the, the, the misrepresentations that, that Jeffrey Sachs and Bono and uh, that lot uh, perpetuate about Malawi, I think is important, because particularly now, Malawi is is this sort of test case of, of if only, and I'm going to just use your question to talk about Malawi, I hope you don't mind. Um, so uh, uh, Malawi is this very interesting sort of test case of um, how, how it is that we're going to feed the world in the future. Um, and it, it, it's become this place where alternative agriculture is, uh, sorry, where fertilizer subsidies and these kinds of things are being promoted as the solution to, to hunger in Africa. But if you, I mean, from, from, from what I've been able to dig up so far, um, that's, that looks like a crock of shit. Uh, and for two reasons. I mean, bear in mind, uh, Malawi was, uh, went through a period of, of profound hunger a couple of years ago. Uh, and then, all of a sudden, the, the story is that, that Malawi started making fertilizer subsidies available, and all of a sudden, crops improved, and the, the hungry were, were, were fed, and, uh, you know, there were lambs and skipping and, you know, happy choirs. Um, but but, but it, it turns out that if you poke at that story a little bit, um, what you have is, first of all, yes, it's true that the crop yields went up a couple of years ago after the fertilizer subsidies were introduced. But actually, the, the reason that there was profound hunger was because there was a drought. And then after that, at the same time as the fertilizer subsidies were introduced, the rains came. 
So of course, you know, the, 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 there were more crops. Um, but you can't, you can't separate out whether that was the rain or whether that was the fertilizer. And then there's another step, which is, yes, of course, there were, there was, there were more crops, there were more grains, but did they get to the hungry? Uh, and right, you know, the, the, the myth is that they did because there's more grain and therefore the hungry will be able to eat. But we understand, particularly right now, that even if there's more food available, as there was last year, there's more food than ever before, um, if people can't afford that food, then they won't get to eat it. Uh, and in Malawi, uh, there's some suggestion that uh, the, the, the data has been manipulated, that people in government have been forced to lie uh, about the, the success that, that Malawi has had. And again, that's the sort of thing that I think is worth investigating because otherwise we, we risk founding, uh, sustainable, founding agriculture policy in the global south on a lie. And again, that, rooting out the truth there is not something that can be done online. Uh, yeah, question here. No, um, first of all, I would like to thank you that you are here because I think it, it's a very inspiring talk. And even though I knew already a lot of what you were saying, I got a lot of new ideas how I can inspire other people. So I think there's a reason that you are here. Um, the point what I wanted to make, actually, I want to come back to your the tragedy of the commons mm -hmm. we were talking about at the beginning. And um, it was a very good excuse for colonialists at that time to divide these this areas in private property. Um, and also in India, I read your last book, Stuffed and Starved, where you said there was this idea in the 1940s, I think, to have commons and to build the agricultural system after the Chinese um, system, but then it was also more uh, into the direction of corporate um, agriculture businesses. But now we have divided all this land into private property, so could you go a bit more into detail how that should be reinstalled and how, yeah, how uh, commons should be reinstalled in our mm. world? That's, that, that's a fantastic question. I, I, I think, um, I, I mean, it, it, it's, it's certainly true that, that, uh, that, that uh, you know, that the, the, the colonialists were, were responsible for, for Erasing um, previously existing kinds of um, of, of property of, of property relations, um, and in fact, there's a very interesting story. Uh, I mean, when, when the colonial enterprise happened in um, in the United States, for instance, uh, John Locke was authoring his you know his theory of property rights that, that, that was about having that uh, you, you could only alienate uh, you only get someone's property if, you, if they weren't using it, right? I mean, the, 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 the only way that you could take over the commons is if demonstrably there weren't people using it already, and if you did take some away, you, you, you leave enough and as good for other people. This is sort of John Locke's theory of property that, that, uh, that, that, that legitimated a great deal of colonial conquest. Now, in, um, in, uh, in the Carolinas, sorry, in the Carolinas, in, in uh, the uh, southern United States, um, agriculture was being performed, uh, and so... Ordinarily, when, when agriculture happened, th those lands were not expropriated by, uh, by colonists. Um, but in, in the southern United States, that agriculture was being done by women. Uh, and, uh, and so while the, you know, the, the rules said that you weren't allowed to expropriate agricultural land, uh, when the colonists came, they came with their gendered lenses, and they saw that, that, that women were not doing agriculture, they were doing gardening. Uh, and, so, and so in that case, uh, that, that land, in fact, was expropriated because women were doing it in, 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 in a way that was, you know, that was perfectly ripe for, 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 uh, for expropriation. 
Um, but you're right. I mean, the, 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 I mean, with more and more of the world carved up, uh, and with people like Hernando de Soto wanting yet more private property, um, in, in, in this case, private property for people living in slums, um, there is a reason to, to, to think, well, all right, well, how, what, what do we do with that? Uh, and I think that there are two ways. I mean, for, for, first of all, you know, the, the, there are legitimate ways of, uh, of, of addressing that question. And, and the MST, I mean, I talked about this a little bit in Stuffed and Starved. The, the, the Brazilian uh, landless rural workers uh, movement excuse me, was, uh, it, it takes, takes land that is being unused or, or is underutilized. Now, under Napoleonic law, that's entirely legit legitimate. When the, the, these, uh, uh, these farm workers take over land, they're, they're actually availing themselves of a part of the Napoleonic law the, 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 in Brazil that, that states that private property has to serve a social function. The only reason we allow private property is because uh, of a notion that somehow when, it is privatized, when, this, when this property is private, it is being put to better use and it will be put to better use than if it lies unclaimed uh, and unused in, in common. Um, what the MST is saying is, look, there's all this land here, someone claims to own it, but actually it's not fulfilling its social function. And if it isn't fulfilling its social function, then we should be allowed to take it, take it over and actually make it productive and bring, you know, bring about its full social realization. And I think that that holds the key to us thinking about other ways of, of, of dealing with property. Um, and, uh, I mean, I, I, and I think what we need is much more plastic understandings of how property works. Um, we need to realize that actually property is, uh, I mean, the, the rules of private property are, are, are not inviolate. Uh, that, that there are rights, I mean, the, 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 when, for example, we talk about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the right to property is only one among many. Uh, and that there are other rights that, that can uh, and should trump the right to private property. Like the right to healthcare, the, you know, the, 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 like um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we've we've got uh, sort of underway um, these climate negotiations. Um, it, it seems to me that the, the, that privatizing the air is probably not the way um, to, to to deal with the the, the climate crisis that, that's ahead. Um, and I think that this idea of using rights, and particularly this idea of a right to have rights. Um, turns out to be a fairly potent way of rethinking how primal the right to private property is. Um, I mean, it, it means, of course, activism, because uh, th there's no way that, that a government, I mean, particularly the governments that we have now, are going to let the primacy of private property slip. Um, but there are ways in which we can demand it. And, of course, you know, if we go back in barely 300 years, we, we already had very flexible ideas of private property. Um, you know, the, 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 I mean, the, 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 the sort of natural rights theorists were very clear that, for example, uh, you know, I'm, I am hungry and I walk past your window and I see, you know, I see your apples uh, that, that of which you have many and you are full and I am hungry, then I'm allowed to take those apples. It, it, it's a natural right for the hungry to be able to, be, to, to, be able to uh, expropriate in order to be able to, you know, to, to, to survive. Now, the, the, those understandings of private property are, again, plastic, much more flexible than the ones we have at the moment, which are, as I, I mean, the, the, I guess that, that was the point that I was trying to make when, thinking of, when talking about Anton's blindness, that we have this sort of monomania about private property, that it is the only way and the only possible, I mean, it is the, the right uber alles, 
Um, and I, I think that, that getting back some of the ideas around commons, uh, around other ways of governing that don't involve just the right to private property, are, are ways in which we can get that flexibility back. And, and a very concrete example, in the United States we have food policy councils. And there are about 90 food policy councils in North America. Um, they're making very specific demands around bringing land into the public domain so that we can have uh, you know, community gardens and we can have uh, public employment around food processing so that, that, that you know, the, the hungry get to have a job as well as get to eat. Uh, and these are demands that are, uh, you know, that are about bringing into, into, the, into public domain um, land that, that is currently private property and that is being underutilized and not serving its social function. So getting back to the idea of land having a social function and property having a social function uh, and organizing around that actually can be pretty successful. Uh, and that's something, again, to derive a little hope from. Thanks very much. I'm, um, I might respond to the guy who said everyone in this room is convinced. Already won over, because um, I'm definitely not um, in any way won over. I mean, you, you laid out in a very entertaining way what is nonetheless a very well-known observation from economic theory that externalities are sometimes not fully incorporated in, in, into market prices. Obviously, everyone in this room is, is, is probably aware of that. Then, then you've taken a kind of three million mile leap in the air, in, in my view, a very, very dangerous leap. I mean, leaving aside the kind of incoherent sloganeering and the kind of infantilization of, you know, heaven forfend that Bhutan peasants should be allowed satellite TV, much better that they retain their kind of... Um, peasant lifestyle, which of course, as you fly from San Francisco to London to, to Malawi, you would, you would never consider taking up yourself. But, but, but far more dangerous, having had a quick look at the kind of Via Campesina website, is this kind of recipe for this extraordinarily regressive anti-globalization recipe, um, uh, which inevitably, we know, the lessons of history are, lead to increased poverty greater localized food shortages and higher prices for everything, including food, um, than would otherwise be the case. Thanks very much. Um, I, I, I beg to differ. Uh, I, I, I think, let, let's start with the idea um, that I think, yeah, well, let's start from where I think you're most wrong. Uh, that uh, the Via Campesina is asking to turn the clock back. When Via Campesina insists on women's rights, for example, uh, that's demanding something that has been denied, particularly in agriculture, for a very, very long time. Um, there's nothing uh, regressive uh, about the insistence, for, uh, the insistence on women's rights. Nor do Via Campesina think that markets are a bad idea. In fact, one of the slogans, uh, and I have to give you a slogan because, uh, you know, and of course, after you've read the book, which I'm sure you will, um, the, uh, you, you, you'll, you'll have a better sense of this. Um, but the, I mean, one of Via Campesina's slogans is access to markets. Yes, uh, we would like access to our own markets. Uh, one of the things that Via Campesina is very clear about is that what has happened under capitalism um, and under modern globalization is that they have been denied access 
to the means to be able to, to afford food. Now, it's all very well to talk about price, but if you're not interested in how people are going to be able to afford the food, then, uh, as Via Campesina clearly are, then you're consigning large parts of the world to, to, to becoming a hostage of the market where they have no employment. Now, in terms of Bhutan, yes, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, access to, uh, to, to information technology is a very important thing. But I also think that there are, and then these, these the access to, to the kinds of media that we have at the moment um, are damaging not only for people in Bhutan, but for people in the United States, for example. Um, and in terms of uh, yeah, everything from the, 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 the I mean, I, I, the, this is a, a, again an example from, from Stuffed and Starved, but um, when you have access to media, uh, there's an example from Fiji, where in 1995 uh, they beamed in, they started beaming in US terrestrial television. And uh, before that, it was just Fiji TV all the time. And then after that, uh, US terrestrial t uh, images came in. Uh, and levels of bulimia uh, for Fijian adolescent girls went from 0 to 12% um, in the space of three years. So it, it's, I, I think it's, it's OK to say that there's something wrong with the kinds of images that we have. Uh, that, that get projected on television, and that was exactly the point that I was making. This is not to say people should not uh, want progress. What I'm saying is that the, the, the way that the, the trap that we're in uh, is that the, the way we shape progress and define progress and count progress is in fact destructive. I think most people would agree that the atmosphere is a massive commons because of global warming. But what's unique about it is that it's so large, maybe community solutions aren't always the best ones. So when it comes to your decision to fly, isn't that both an indication of the importance of government and of market solutions? Because I would prefer someone that I elect to decide on the regulation of air travel rather than it be chosen someone who's chosen randomly. And I would try prefer that when you decided to fly, how many trips you made was based on the attacks stopping you flying too much rather than your own self uh, restraints, which I might not necessarily be able to trust. No, I think that's right. And I think that, that, that um, in terms of climate change, there is, I mean, what I find most objectionable about what's going to happen at Copenhagen, if anything at all happens at Copenhagen, um, is that there will be one solution alone to, to fight climate change. There'll, there'll be a sort of hankering for a silver bullet, and that silver bullet will be cap and trade. Um, I think climate change is far too complex to, 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 uh, to, uh, to, to be solved by a single solution, but particularly a solution that looks like this one, um, where uh, essentially what we're creating is financial instruments that allow, you know, that, that, that impose some sort of tax uh, on, on, tra on, uh, on, on carbon consumption, but then sell the right for the, uh, and then allow the private sector to collect that tax. Um, there's, there's something particularly nuts about that. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I certainly think that, there, that this is absolutely a need for, co for a coordinated solution. I, I, I mean, I think restraint is one thing, but, uh, and that's a good thing. Uh, but but, but it's, it's, it's clearly not sufficient. We, we need other ways of reinserting the value of, of, of carbon sequestration, for example, uh, into, our, uh, in, into the, way that, that we, uh, the, the, the way that we live. Um, so I think you know, taxation is part of it. I, I think that uh, investment is part of it. But I also think that you know, very strong regulation is part of it. I mean, you know, the, the, when you think about um, the idea of uh, when we say murderers should pay for their crimes, 
we don't mean that they should pay. You know, it, it's not a sort of pay-as-you-go, you know, uh, you know, kill a person, $5,000, know, or you buy a bundle. You know, this idea of paying uh, it shouldn't be taken too literally. I mean, there, there are ways in which we, we very, you know, that we're happy with the idea of actually prohibiting things. Um, and those kinds of solutions, solutions that, that, uh, that, that, you know, that, that involve coordination between states to actually you know, prohibit the, 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 um, uh, the creation of new coal power stations, for example, uh, are not on the table. And so so I, I certainly think that um, insofar as we, we, we use markets, you know, in, in, I mean, a carbon taxation is a very good thing. Um, I think that, that there are a range of other policies that we need as well. There's no one solution that's going to fix it all. Uh, but I also think that, uh, that, that actually, you know, that, that, that in terms of um, setting the framework for commons and for, for, for negotiating together, what we need is, is more democratic engagement. Because the reason that we have the solutions that we have on the table at the moment is because there has been no democracy in the, in the creation of these carbon derivatives. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I, 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 mean, I, 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 I like George Monbiot's uh, idea of buying, you know, ice caps of, of, of sort of, um, of incredibly strict uh, sort of ideas of, of permissions to fly um, that, that would severely re restrict, you know, that, that, that sort of behaviour. But I also think that, that you know, and, and Monbiot also says this too, that that's not the only thing that we need, that we need to be doing. I, th I mean, I think he's right. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, if, if, if I mean, I, I, I also agree that, that I need to walk the talk better than I do. Okay, uh, I feel like an auctioneer, but uh, you, you um, First of all, thank you very much for your talk. Um, one, of the, one of the biggest debates in the United States right now is about health care, is private Prioritizing healthcare. I'm sorry, making public healthcare available to, to citizens. Um, one of the the arguments that kind of go against that is, or at least by those who advocate it, that uh, if we have public healthcare, then the quality will go down. The, the healthcare quality will go down, and also, uh, you know, prices will increase. And also, it's an in, uh, markets tend to be sorry. Government-run programs are very inefficient. So how would you respond to something like that? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I think that the, the, the data on healthcare is fairly clear that, that, that the United States pays far more money uh, for not necessarily better care than any other you know, developed country. Um, so in terms of health outcomes, the U.S. is doing pretty badly. In terms of, uh, you know, and the fact that the private sector is, is there doing an incredibly bad job compared to other countries um, should be sufficient evidence to, to suggest that, that something else is required. And you know, I, I'm, I'm not a health economist, um, but it seems fairly fairly clear to, to most people that, that a single payer solution would reduce costs for the majority of Americans, um, provide in, you know, provide in insurance uh, of a, a significantly better quality than, than most people have at the moment, um, and it doesn't seem to to preclude uh, you know, the, 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 the kinds of high quality of care that uh, an incredibly small number of Americans are able to afford. Okay, there's a queue now, but uh, next question's there, please. Yeah, with the red scarf. An interesting talk. Uh, you spoke about debts that developing 
countries are owed by the developed world. You've also talked about climate change. You've talked about social justice and stinting in consumerist societies. And then you dramatically disappointed me by talking only about safe and fluffy, friendly topics. You talked about a silver bullet theory of mass media. And you talked also about women's rights and the beauty of going back to the land. Well, let's talk about the difficult things. What do we need to give up in consumerist society? And how can we convince people who've been living in a mass consumer society that it's time to give things up and we need to think seriously about what we need to give up? And coming back to issues of social justice and global social justice, how do we apply this to particularly difficult issues and thinking particularly about the British case around immigration and the debts that we owe, what we have caused in the developing world. Um, thanks. Uh, I, I guess uh, I'm, I'm not sure I was talking about the beauty of going back to the land, but, but uh, I mean, I, I certainly think that, that there, I mean, in, in terms of reparations, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy to talk about that. I mean, I, I, that's, that's why I was talking about the f uh, $5 trillion debt that rich countries owe poor ones, is that that's a sign of why we need to be active in terms of uh, remembering what it is that is owed to whom. Um, there have been some attempts to try and make that happen uh, through the UN Conference on Racism. Uh, but uh, as, in fact, Naomi Klein had a lovely article about that recently in which she, she showed how that act of memory, the act of remembering colonialism, is something that most rich country governments do not want to do. And, and that's why uh, the U.S. stormed out of the U.N. Conference on Racism. Uh, th th there was some, uh, I mean, the, 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 their pretext was that it was uh, in some way indicting Israel. But actually, there was nothing in the UN Conference on Racism that indicted Israel any more than it has been indicted by the international community at the United Nations in terms of uh, the apartheid war, for example. Um, but really, you know, the, the main agenda there was uh, to, to forestall the possibility of reparations. I think reparations are absolutely overdue. Uh, and, uh, there's, and, and that's something that um, is, yeah, is, is masked from view. Um, and yet, we, you know, if, if we're serious about uh, uh, you know, uh, markets working and of debts being paid, then the reparations of, of slavery, the reparations for colonialism, and, the, you know, and the, the payments for these environmental debts are certainly owed. Um, the, the, I mean, you know, at the moment, the kinds of debts that we're, we're getting involved in are you know, the several trillion dollars of debt that, will, that our kids will be paying in order just to, to, to sort of bail out the banks. So it, it, it's certainly clear that governments are prepared to undertake large debt in order for, and to, to, to burden future generations with incredible amounts of debt. Um, but what's not clear is that, that those debts are being, you know, I mean, the, the, the beneficiaries of those debts are unfortunately um, the, you know, the, the executive committee, sorry, it is the, you know, the, the financial industry, uh, and unfortunately he is not the, the people in developing countries. In terms of what it is that we'll have to give up, um, I mean, I, I, I think that, that that's something that we, you know, I, I think we do need to talk about that. I mean, it's, it's certainly clear that, that uh, in thinking about air travel, again, 
Uh, and uh, I don't know how many times I have to say this, people. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm bad. I shouldn't fly as much as I do. Uh, and I, I, I think that in, in terms of um, you know, the, the, in, in terms of the foods that we eat, in terms of the way that we live, we do need to change. Uh, and I, I think that the, the way that we undertake those is for, from a very careful and, uh, and sort of deliberate and democratic uh, understanding of what the full costs of those things are. You know, the, the, there was the, there was a, a report about you know yeah, every time you use Google, an angel dies. Uh, of, of a, a certain you know that um, you know, if, if you Google a couple of times, it's the same as boiling a cup of tea. Uh, that, that, that turned out to be a, a bit of an exaggeration. But actually, we have no idea um, what you know what, what Google's energy use is because it, it doesn't have to disclose it. It's a private company. Um, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, in terms of sort of adding the, the, the full costs of all this, um, again, the, the, the market has, has some role to play, but it's not the only way in which we should be dependent for, for our calculations of value. Uh, this, yes, this, this gentleman here, please. I was looking for angels in the index. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, hi, Raj. Uh, thanks a lot for your talk. Um, you were mentioning um, the need to rediscover what democracy is, and a sort of, in a sense, it was like you're talking about sort of a bottom-up mm. uh, approach. But I was considering, like, uh, you know, transnational corporations are like the drivers of capitalism, and nowadays, I mean, they're even like more powerful than nation states. I was wondering, do you think there needs to be greater sort of democracy within the transnational corporations or practices and reform from within? There before we see any change as well. Do, so, so do, do I think that, that there needs to be more democracy within? Yeah, like a democratization of the transnational corporations and their practices. Well, yeah, but but, but um, I mean, I, th I think that's that, that, that's a great question. But but, but I, I I I mean, the 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 idea of the transnational corporation, the idea of the, of, of the corporation itself, is. Uh, fundamentally not democratic. Um, it, it is an institution that is a, a, a profit-maximizing institution. I mean, the, the, again, the, the, those are the uh, the um, uh, uh, sorry. What was that say? Go faster. We want more questions. Okay. I'm going to go faster. Uh, but, uh, no, I, I'm. Oh, we have. Okay, fair enough. Um, but, but the, uh, I mean, I, I think that the, the idea of, um, I mean, the, the only steps that, 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 that transnational corporations make towards that kind of a, an approach is this idea of corporate social responsibility. Um, and again, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I mean, I, I, when you see corporate social responsibility, I've, I've sort of talked to people who are the corporate social responsibility officers and they're, you know, this guy from Unilever, a splendid guy, um, who, I mean, who, who, is, uh, who is saying, look, if there's an opportunity where there's a win for the company and a win for the environment or for society, of course, that's what we're going to do. And, and that's, that's great. I'm, I'm pleased when, you know, that we, we have a win for society. That's, that, that's a nice thing. Um, but whenever there's a conflict between the two, obviously the corporation does the profit-maximizing thing and leaves the, the win for society unwon. Uh, and that, th that suggests that, that in, in order to, um, you know, to, to bring about the kinds of transformation we need, uh, 
the, the, the very structure of a corporation needs to be transformed. And in fact, the, 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 I talk about this in, in, um, in The Valley of Nothing. I mean, this is a sort of ongoing debate. I mean, really, it's, it's a, you can trace it back to sort of Hobbes and Rousseau. Um, Rousseau had, had, had I mean, you know, Hobbes, we understand, you know, this idea of the state of nature and everyone you know, you know, going at it hell for leather and needing a leviathan to bring, you know, to bring the fear of God into everyone to, to behave themselves. Now, Rousseau had a very interesting idea around, um, around, non, yeah, around non-natural people. Uh, things, yeah, organizations that humans make, things like governments. Rousseau was very suspicious of governments. And he was very suspicious of, uh, of, 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 of what, what we understand as corporations as well. Because he understood that these are organizations that are rapacious. I mean, the, the, the people are rapacious, but corporations can be more rapacious because they don't have to sleep. They don't have, to, they don't have human appetites to worry about. They can never get enough. Um, and th the idea of a sated corporation, a corporation that has uh, th th that has decided, yeah, actually that's good enough. We don't need to, you know, we don't need to make any more money. Today's, yeah, we're going to go to bed. Um, is is of course, you know, not, not uh, is, is is impossible to think of in, in in the way that the corporations behave these days. And that's why Rousseau was tremendously concerned by this idea of uh, the, the, the perpetually rapacious non-human person of a government or or a corporation. Um, and every society has actually been worried about that. I mean, Marx termed, the, termed that uh, you know, sort of vampirism. But almost every society has a story about um, the consequences of uh, uh, unbridled uh, acqu you know, acquisitiveness, uh, whether it's a sort of Thai Buddhist tradition of uh, the hungry ghost that is perpetually ravenous but you know, the, 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 that, uh, that, that can never be sated, or, or uh, the, the, the Western and Native American tradition of windigos, uh, which is sort of creatures that are so rapacious that, they, they have, that they've devoured their own teeth because they've been gnashing all the time. There's, there are these, these sort of fabulous creatures uh, that are designed to, to, to remind us of the dangers of rapacity. Um, the modern corporation is kind of like those creatures, and I, I, I don't see how democratizing them could happen. Uh, I think much more sensibly, it makes it, 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 the, the way to go would be to create rules in which um, people can organize to, to form economic units to be able to uh, avail themselves of economies of scale, but only when that has, you know, that's the, the terrain of that organizing has been uh, prefigured beforehand. Take three questions at once. Yeah. Hi there. Um, I'd like to ask about the agroecological agriculture that you said was sustainable. Um, and you gave the example of Cuba, where it was the Cuban farmers that mm. demanded it of their government. Um, in an era of global agricultural exports, um, Who's the one, who are the people that you see should initiate this? Consumers from importing countries or producers from exporting? Great. Yeah, I'm, I have a pen, paper, we're all good. Yeah, just a question really about a sense of what's going on in the States. Hmm. Um, is there a, do you get a sense that there's a, a revaluing, to take up your theme, of how we understand the way in which we produce and consume? Is there a debate taking place at 
um, the top of society, which is, you know, while we might be critical of it, is important. For, for example, for my sins, I read the FT avidly. Uh, you probably do as well, Raj. Um, and there is a genuine debate breaking out there, and has been since the crisis has broken, about just how are we supposed to sustain and develop ourselves. And even arch neoliberals like Samuel Britton is coming out and saying, actually, surprise, surprise to, to people like himself, you wonder where he's been, maybe money doesn't bring happiness. So is there a sense of that debate breaking in the States because of the crisis and the depth and nature of it? On Thursday, um, the European Commission are going to be rolling out a new campaign across Europe, Eat Less Meat, which I'm sure the NFU will have a lot to say about. I was just wondering what you thought about that campaign. Grand. <laughs> Three top questions. Oh, there's one more. One more, please. Is that okay? And then that's it, I'm afraid. You've been spoiled. Hi, um, thanks for coming tonight as well. Um, it's great to hear you speak. And I just wanted to ask you um, what your thoughts are on the land grabs um, and um, the policy development on sort of governance of the land grabs today. Grand. Uh, four amazing questions and... Uh, what, we got half an hour? <laughs> uh, okay. Um, in terms of agroecology and the push for that, I think it, it has to come both ways. And, and it, interestingly, you are seeing pushes for that, both from you know, the, the, the producer end, but also from organizations like, I mean, I mean, the Slow Food. I don't know if you've heard of Slow Food. It's, you know, I, I mean, at, at some level, it's sort of middle class. It's sort of a circle jerk of olive oil fanciers and red wine fed. Um, but, but it's also, I mean, it, it is moving toward uh, actually being a, a sort of activist group, particularly in the United States, uh, with, with some very interesting ideas. Uh, and there are consumer groups that are making that, those kinds of demands. Um, coupled with the idea that, that people ought to be able to have the income to be able to afford sustainable food. I mean, it's, it's, you, you, have, you, you can't just say, I want more expensive food and expect that to, to go down. I mean, no one wants more expensive food without bigger, you know, better income. I mean, no one minds paying the full cost of something, but uh, you need to be able to ensure that people are able to afford to do that. So you have uh, pushes, you know, I think it, it comes from both ends. Uh, and you see it happening in, in, in India, for example, which is a, a massively agricultural country. I mean, there's also pushes from uh, urban areas in India for, for more of these kinds of sustainable agriculture. So it, it, both ends is the short answer. Um, in terms of the debate, I, you know, I, I, it's been interesting to watch the wailing and gnashing of teeth and the certain, you know, the certain amount of sort of flagellation in the, the pages of the FT um, by people who, who, again, sort of pretend that they, they saw this coming. Um, and I, 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 I think that, I mean, if, if you do read the, the, the FT, as, a, as we both do, it, it, it is entertaining uh, to, to watch people eat crow, um, the, the, you know, particularly people we loathe. Uh, but, but I think in terms of that debate going anywhere in, the, in terms of policy, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not seeing it. There's, I mean, in terms of the food policy in the United States, which is what, what, what I follow more closely than other things, um, I'm not seeing a single initiative that, that really takes that very seriously other than Michelle Obama's vegetable garden. Um, and if, 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 that's the, you know, if, if, if that's the sort of upshot of the elites debating, then I think you know, we've, we've still got very far to come. So, I mean, I, 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 and I think also there's this... Um, I mean, particularly in the FT, there's also, uh, you know, you'll see these sort of hand-wringing things, and then you'll, you'll, you'll always have someone saying, and now the crisis is over. Uh, and and, and th th this, this kind of ongoing self-deception uh, around 
um, you know, the, 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 the forever just about to end crisis uh, is also what allows a more fundamental dis- discussion around value not to happen. Uh, and I'm, you know, I, I think at an elite level it's not happening. But I am hearing uh, a lot more you know, from, you know, from community groups, uh, you know, particularly from people who, who are out of work and are figuring out you know, other ways in which to organize uh, their communities and their economies. Um, those kinds of debates are happening. In terms of eat less meat, of course, me and my vegetarian family are here and we approve. Um, <laughs> So, uh, thanks very much. And, no, but, but, I mean, I, I certainly think, I mean, in terms of carbon footprint, um, meat, uh, meat consumption is tremendously important. But if we're interested in uh, carbon footprint, actually the uh, nitrous oxide emissions from uh, fertilizer are tremendously potent. In the United States, they're much bigger than, uh, than uh, necessarily the, the, the meat, um, you know, the sort of methane from burping cows uh, and swine. Uh, so so uh, I think if, if we're interested in, in sustainable um, carbon sequestration, then we need more. Uh, I mean, we, we, you know, if, if the only thing that we do is eat less meat, which is good, um, uh, the, 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 we won't go very far. I think we need, to, we need to do a bit more. And finally, the land grabs. Um, in case you don't know, in, in Africa, um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember the, the number. I think it's 20. No, it has to be more than that. The, 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 if, the, so the story is that, that, that increasingly rich countries, particularly countries that, whose agriculture has either exhausted or never really had any water, uh, are going for land in Africa, predominantly in Africa, but also elsewhere, uh, to be able to grow food so that that food be exported back to whatever country this is happening in. Um, this is it's happening. The, the investors are both national governments and private sector, you know, large corporations and um, you know, and individual investors buying up land in order to be able to grow it, grow food to send back. Um, that's a very bad idea, um, and but it, it, you'll, you'll notice that, that the land that's being grabbed is invariably land that has water underneath it, um, and it usually comes from, as I say, from. from I mean, China is a, is, is a big investor, but so Saudi Arabia, and there's, there, there are there are a number of. of I mean, Korea is is, is also doing it. Um, there are a number of countries that are joining Europe and, and North America in the, the, the process of buying up other parts of the world and then using that in a sort of modern form of colonialism. Um, I wish I could talk a little bit more about that, but if you're interested, the UN Special Rapporteur on the, the Human Right to Food um, has fantastic resources on this, as does the organization Grain. Uh, and if you, if you visit grain.org, uh, you'll be able to find out a lot more about these land grabs, which are tremendously pernicious uh, and which absolutely militate against people in developing countries being able to feed themselves. Thank you very much for enormously entertaining uh, talk. My turn to do some pimping, and I'm only uh, on the tube, so I think my footprint's okay. There are copies of this outside. Unfortunately, you do have to buy them, um, but Raj will sign them for free, uh, and he'll sit here, so if you want to come and have a chat. But thank you very, very much. It was very excellent.